ready? to be a light to the nations, and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Borei pri hagafin, Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. And now the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech olam. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. Now, husbands, if you will bless your wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wife that you've given me. And Father, we thank you and we pour out a blessing upon all the wives on this Sabbath day. I pray that you bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she rises in the night to see about the ways of the household. And I pray that you strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. Father, I pray that you pour out your very best blessing upon her and that you would encourage her in everything that she does. Let her know how worthy of praise and honor that she is. And Father, I confess with all of my heart that I love her and I thank you, Lord, for her. We also bless all of the widows and orphans, those without a father or a husband at this time as well. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right, now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. 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 Let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruch the call to worship. Baruch et Aronai Hamvorach. Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Mi chamocha ba'elim Adonai Mi chamocha nedar ba'kodesh Nora te'ilot o'osef 
Blessing of Messiah. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech ha-Yeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et hashabat, la'asot et hashabat la'doratam barit olam, b'nei uvayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam, Kishishet yamin asa aronai et hashmayim va et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat vayinefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto, Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elochecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. This is a promise. From the Father to His people. 
If my people, if my people who are called by my name, by my name will humble themselves and pray. And if my people, if my people who are called by my name, by my name will humble themselves and seek my face. And if they'll turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear and will forgive their sin, and I'll heal their land, I'll heal their land, I'll heal their land, I'll heal their land. with us if my people, if my people who, are who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and if my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and if they'll turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal and will forgive their sin. And I'll heal their land, I'll heal their land, and I'll heal their land, and I'll heal their land. Oh, heal our land, 
Heal our land Heal our land Oh, 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 heal If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and seek my faith. Keep me to your Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and welcome to our Arab Shabbat broadcast this Sabbath. Our portion this week is entitled Bo, and it is a continuation of the story of the judgments that are befalling uh, Egypt uh, before the actual exodus from Egypt begins. And in fact, in this portion, we're going to look at the last three judgments, locust, darkness, and then the death of the firstborn. And our portion deals with those judgments, and in particular, the prime thing it deals with is about the whole idea of the Passover, including the commandments of uh, the memorialization of Passover and, and uh, those things associated with it. Bo actually means go. And the whole story in the Torah at that point is, is about how God was forcing Pharaoh to release uh, the children of Israel, uh, going back into our last portion where we had the first seven judgments, the whole reason why the judgments fell is because of, uh, fell upon Egypt is because Pharaoh, upon being requested and announced that the God of the Hebrews wanted his people to be set free, uh, Pharaoh said, I don't know the God of the Hebrews. 
And so God, through these judgments, began to reveal who God was. And after some of the judgments, why, you know, it would be announced to Pharaoh that you might know that God is in the midst of all of Egypt. And some other judgments came, and then it was said, so you might know that God is in the midst of the whole world. Um, and the whole idea was the revealing of God to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, of course, and the Egyptians, they had many gods. Um, they had the, the sun god, the river Nile god. Pharaoh was a god. They had all these different ancient gods. Um, and, but they didn't have anything about the god of the Hebrews. And, of course, we all know all of the Egyptian gods were false gods. And the god of the Hebrews is the one true god. And so that's the conflict that's being played out with all of these judgments uh, upon Egypt. I've always made this comment that if God's real goal was to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt, I got a whole new plan on how to quickly get that done. We'll just blind the Egyptians and the Israelis get up and walk out. Um, but that's not what happened. And the reason that's not what happened is because there was a whole other objective. And the objective was that God wanted to reveal himself to the Egyptians, to the Israelites, and to the whole world as to who he was. And that's what our great story of all these judgments and so forth that falls upon it. Now, last week, uh, just to tie it together with this week's portion, uh, we looked at those early judgments and we had a passage of scripture from Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet that was in Babylon that was a contemporary of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was in, still in the land. Ezekiel was actually in Babylon. And the two portions of both of these weeks, the Haftor portions, again, is Ezekiel speaking against Egypt, and Jeremiah in this portion is going to speak against Egypt as well. And going back uh, to the, the events that were taking place um, in, in Ezekiel and Jeremiah's day, there had been the Babylonians on the one side to the east of Israel, Israel in the middle, and the, and the Egyptians. And uh, the Babylonians and the Egyptians weren't getting along with each other, and it looked like there was going to be a war. And Israel's in the middle. And Israel has to make a decision, well, which way are they going to go? Because they've got to, they've got to choose sides. So the, this war is getting ready to come between the Babylonians and the Egyptians. Well, all the prophets warned Israel, don't make an agreement with the Egyptians. That's exactly what they did. And as a result, the Babylonians came and they attacked Israel. And thus we had the uh, exiles, you know, out of the house of Judah were taken back to Babylon. And there was the captivity in Babylon. And in this portion of Jeremiah, which is the continuation of the story, he tells um, Nebuchadnezzar at Babylon that they're going to continue to go on down and he's telling Pharaoh and Egypt you're going to get wiped out and the reason why we have these two portions together while we're talking about the judgments upon Egypt in the Torah portion is because they're both dealing with harm that's going to come to Egypt in the case of the ancient uh, exodus God poured out these judgments upon Egypt and in the case of the modern event, I say modern, I'm really referring to Jeremiah and Ezekiel's day, 
it was that harm will come to Egypt as well. Israel, don't make an agreement with Egypt. Don't go back to Egypt. You left Egypt in the original Exodus. Don't go back and make an agreement with them. You're done with Egypt. No, no, we, Israel can't seem to learn that lesson. And as a result of doing that, they've suffered harm. They're in captivity uh, with the Babylonians. So this portion, uh, the Hoftor portion, that ties into the final judgments of of Bo, of our Torah portion, is addressing what Jeremiah is saying is going to happen to Egypt through the hand of the Babylonians. And our portion comes from Jeremiah chapter 46. Uh, to, and be, let's begin at verse 13. This is the message which the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to smite the land of Egypt. He's, he's now prophesying to Egypt, you know, Babylon who came and attacked Israel and took us captive. Guess what he's getting ready to do to you, Egypt? And so the words that follow say, verse 14, declare in Egypt and proclaim in Migdal, proclaim also in Memphis and Tamphanes, say, take your stand and get yourself ready for the sword has devoured those around you. Why have your mighty ones become prostrate? They do not stand because the Lord has thrust them down. They have repeatedly stumbled. Indeed, they have fallen one against another. Then they said, get up and let us go back uh, to our own people in our native land, away from the sword of the oppressor. They cried there, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is but a big noise. He has let the appointed time pass by. As I live, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts, surely one shall come who looms up like Tabor among the mountains or like Carmel by the sea. Make your baggage ready for exile, O daughter dwelling in Egypt, for Memphis will become a desolation. It will even be burned down and bereft of inhabitants. Egypt is a pretty heifer. Um, but a horsefly is coming from the north. It is coming. Also, her mercenaries in her midst are like fattened calves. And even those who turned back and have fled away together, they did not stand their ground. For the day of their calamity has come upon them, the time of their punishment. Now, I want to go to the final verse. I could keep reading. It's going to be the prophet again continuing to speak these things. But here's the message part that ends with what Jeremiah is saying to the children of Israel. Now, those that were in captivity. So he's prophesied that Babylon is going to come and destroy Egypt. But you, Israel, in the midst of all this, I have something to say to you. And here's what he has to say. It's verse 28. Or let me start at verse 27. But if as for you, O Jacob, my servant, do not fear, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for see, see, I'm going to save you from afar, and your descendants from the land of their captivity, and Jacob shall return and be undisturbed and secure, and no one will be making him tremble. O Jacob, my servant, do not fear, declares the Lord, for I am with you, for I shall make a full end of all the nations where I have driven you. And yet I shall 
not make a full end of you. For I shall correct you properly, but by no means leave you unpunished. The, um, the message that Jeremiah is trying to give to Israel and how it ties in to our Torah portion again. We have these judgments that hit Egypt in the ancient Exodus, and they resulted in this one last judgment, the death of the first, firstborn, which turned out to be uh, what we call our Passover. And the message of the Passover is the message of redemption. We're covered by the blood of the Lamb. We eat the bread of haste. We've had the taste of bitterness of captivity, but now we're about to be released. And when we're released, we're going to be going on a journey to the promised land. And God will turn his face toward us and do good to us in the midst of this. And basically, here's Jeremiah saying, and you could take these words that I just read from Jeremiah, and you can apply them in all generations. In fact, I would suggest to you at this very moment that these words are even more applicable to you and I today. You and I, like the remnant of Judah in exile in Babylon, you and I are in exile of all the nations of the world. We've tried to make the best of the situation, just like Judah tried to make the best there in Babylon. They built businesses and houses and tried to live, and we've done the same thing here. But this is definitely not the promised land. This is a version of Babylon and Egypt all put together. And we're in exile. And where is God in all of this? You know, this God of the Bible that we read all these ancient stories about, about redemption and, and uh, restoration and so forth. Where, where is the God of the creation with us today? Well, here's the message. He says, I know you're in exile. I know where you're at. He said, don't be afraid. I know there's a lot of things happening and going to happen. He said, but I fully plan on saving you from afar. I don't care what nation you're in. And just like Moses also prophesied in Deuteronomy 30, even if you're in the remotest parts of the earth from there, I will call you back. Well, I'm sitting in Oklahoma. That definitely qualifies as one of the remotest parts of the earth from the standpoint of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God's promise is all extends all the way to me where I'm at with all my brethren. And in all the locations where those that are listening to this teaching, wherever they're at, this promise remains with us. The great message of the Torah portion and, and give us the instruction of the Passover was to explain to us this God who he wanted to reveal himself. He's revealing that this God has the power and the intention, the heart and the will to pass you from death to life. And quite honestly, that's the most fundamental question in our entire existence. Because we're all staring into the future and it's death. How do we get past that? Well, I'll tell you how we get past that. See, we have this God, and he's demonstrated that he knows how to do that. 
He's promised that he will do that. And he's given every one of us a promise. I will pass you from death to life. And you'll be with me and you'll be at peace. And you will no longer have the turmoil and the problems and the issues that we have here while we're in exile for the nations. Personally, a very encouraging uh, lesson for it. If I could just go back with just a tiny bit of detail on our portion as to what, because I love the way Jeremiah explains the judgment that's, that the Babylonians are going to put on Egypt, but it's really at the will of God to do so. He uh, talks about Pharaoh specifically, and he says, you're Pharaoh, you're nothing more than a lot of noise. You talk big. There's nothing more that, to you. Wow, what a degrading thing to say to a world leader. You're nothing more than a bunch of noise. Um, the common expression we sometimes use when we're talking about somebody who's a blowhard or whatever is that he talks a great story, but he can't do anything. Um, and that's the language that's being used against Pharaoh, um, their enemy. And then he talks about the mighty ones. Now, this is uh, very interesting. I've found out that the mighty ones, always being referred to in Egypt, are those, you know, those big statues, you know, and uh, the big gods, you know, they make, uh, you know, you see the, the sphinxes and at the um, tomb of the kings, you have all these big things and these, it says, all of those are going to get knocked down. And the individual gods uh, that were in Egypt that they used to have great statues of, guess what? When the Babylonians came through, they knocked them all down. And basically, Jeremiah is challenging Egypt. You know, you trusted in these gods. Why don't you have them get up and defend you? Well, you know, these big stone things, when they fall over, they're never going to get set back up again. Why would you set a statue of a god that didn't help you and was toppled by your enemy? Why would you ever go back and set it up and proclaim that he was a good god for you? It's, it, once it falls, it's nonsense, and it is no more. Instead, it is simply left for the history books of that that people at that time used to proclaim this to be a certain god and this to be very important. I want to draw a parallel to our world today on those points because God could be issuing the same proclamation of judges that's getting ready to come. We have a lot of powerful people in the world, powerful nations. They're just a lot of hot noise. They're just a big noise. It's all talk. They can't do anything. All of the things that they think that will protect them, their ideology, for example, their, all of that, they're all going to get knocked over and they're all simply going to fall into the history of the fallen statutes and gods of Egypt. They're going to join with them. One of my um, uh, favorite teachings about Pharaoh and the judgment that fell upon him, and we don't know this for sure, but this is what Torah teachers will teach. Pharaoh represented kind of the first of all of the world's tyrants. 
and uh, he was tyrannical toward the children of Israel. And we've had many tyrants in the world since then. I'll mention just a couple of them. Uh, for example, Joseph Stalin, Hitler, and anybody who's come against Israel and against the, the people of Israel. These are these various tyrants throughout the ages that have taken place. Well, one of the teachings that we teach about the judgment that's coming on them, and Jeremiah is pronouncing this judgment upon them, is that Pharaoh, uh, after he died, he's down at hell. And God has stationed Pharaoh at the gate of hell so that every tyrant that is followed thereafter, no matter what age and time, as they get ready to enter into hell, they have to go past Pharaoh. And he asked them a question. And the question he asked is, did you not learn anything from what happened to me? And speaks to, as the Bible does, the Bible uses Pharaoh as a, this first tyrant of the children of Israel as an example of all tyrants in the world. And we see the judgment that fell upon Pharaoh, not only by God directly, but by the enemies of Egypt under the thrust of God. And it's a message, you know, we're talking about God wants to reveal himself. It's a message to all of in the enemies of Israel. That this is who I am, and this is what I'm going to do to you if you do these things. And so that's part of this echoing message that comes from Ezekiel and Jeremiah in the days of the captivity. He's warning Nebuchadnezzar, you be real careful <laughs> about what you do with the children of Israel. Guess what happens to Nebuchadnezzar? His kingdom is taken away from him. And he's destroyed as well. It's a warning to all of the tyrants of the world. Do not harm God's people. Do not come against them. And the message to us is, do not be afraid. I will deliver you. I will save you from afar. And uh, I will bring you back uh, to the land. That's the overarching message, the overarching story of redemption and salvation. And the idea behind it is, is that it should provoke us to believe and trust in the Lord and to follow his instruction and his counsel and his direction, not only in our personal lives, but in our country, in our communities, that we should follow his counsel. Failing to do so simply brings, allows the enemies of us to come against us. And when they come against us, God is going to harm them for having done so. Um, so that's our, that's our message for this week. And uh, as we prepare for Passover season coming up, uh, look at particularly the Passover instructions in our Torah portion. And I encourage all of you to plan right now this year to participate in the Passover and remember the great story of redemption, which ties back into these uh, Torah portions. So with that said, Shabbat Shalom to all of you. Blessings. Shabbat Shalom. 
If you would please now turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, hold, go to chapter 8, hold your finger at verse 6, where our Brit Hadashah portion will begin for this week. And let me turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your teaching, your instruction, and for this time to study your word. Father, we thank you for all the words that you have given to us in our scriptures, from not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well, Father. And I pray that the words and the message of the Torah portion for this week would be conveyed and would penetrate our hearts and our minds, Lord, and minister to us here on this week. Father, we thank you for this time. In Yeshua's name, amen. Our Torah portion is Bo, which means go, uh, which comes back, if you look back at Exodus chapter 10, is where we now have the last of the plagues, the plague of locusts, the plague of darkness, and the death of the firstborn. And then we have the commandments in our Torah portion here for the instruction of the Passover, the Passover lamb that the children of Israel were to slay while in Egypt, while they were pleading for, when Moses was pleading before Pharaoh to let the people go, and all the plagues came, but Pharaoh continued to harden his heart. And then we have the implementation of the Passover, the memorial meal, the memorial sacrifice that is to celebrate the exodus from Egypt. Because after the Passover, after the death of the firstborn, that is when the children of Israel are released from their captivity and leave Egypt and go on the exodus. Our Torah portion has a lot of different parts to it and sections to it, specifically talking about the plagues. The first part of our Torah portion concludes the instructions of the plagues, all the judgments that were coming upon Egypt, that were coming upon the gods of Egypt. And so we have an incredible parallel in the book of Revelation, not only here in chapter 8, but also in Revelation chapter 16, when we go all the way to the end of the age, all the way to the prophecies that precede the return of the Lord to this earth, and that we have a great deal of judgments that are given for us here in the book of Revelation. It's never been any uh, sort of question as to the fact that the judgments that are, are prophesied in the book of Revelation absolutely do parallel in some ways, some uh, in you know very literal ways in which the same type of plague that happened in Egypt is going to happen upon the world at the end of the age, but then also just the idea that God is pouring out His wrath and with great power He is making Himself known to the entire world at the end of the age. In the same way, He was making Himself known to the Egyptians in ancient Egypt. So we have two passages here in the book of Revelation that sort of wrap up this entire idea, this concept that God is judging the world and that He is going to reveal Himself to the world at the end of the age. So let us read here these passages here in Revelation. And as you have read and heard from the Torah portion already of what the plagues were and what the Egyptians experienced, Here, let's now read some of the scriptures out of Revelation that describe some of the judgments that will come in some future date. Revelation chapter 8, starting at verse 6, says this, So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first trumpet is this, in uh, verse 7, The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And the third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And the third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, 
burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was Wormwood. A third of the water became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the, mo of the moon, and a third of the stars, and a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who were about to sound. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, to him who was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who did, do not have the seal of God on their forehead. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it, and they will desire to die, and death will flee from them. The shape of the locusts were like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads were crowns, and something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men, and had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth, and, the, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, which many horses run, with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and, they were, and there were stings on their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, and the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in the Greek he has the name Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Let's go ahead and stop there. Here we have the judgments of Revelation that are coming upon the earth at the end of the age. Some of them have direct parallels to what happened in ancient Egypt. You can see the first trumpet specifically describes about how hail and fire came down upon the earth and trees were burned up and all the grass was burned up. That's exactly what happened in the plague of hail that came upon the Egyptians. And then it talks about how that, the, um, that there was darkness and that how the, a, something would come where the heavens were actually judged and the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, and that brought forth darkness. And then you also have this star falling from the earth that will go, opens a bottomless pit that smoke burns up into the atmosphere like a fiery furnace. And then that darkens the sun and the moon, it says for five months and out of that bottomless pit come locusts, terrible, horrific things that are described for us here in the scripture that come almost what seems like something that would come out of a horror movie is this judgment that would come upon the earth. Now, this is talking about a judgment upon the whole earth. It kind of is, seems a little bit greater than what happened in ancient Egypt. But the parallel still is there. If you think about the locusts and you think about the judgments and the plagues that all came upon Egypt, they were these great, terrible judgments. 
and they built upon one another. I know we only in, this, in our Torah portion for this week are only talking about the last three of the, pla- of the plagues, but really just sort of to wrap up that entire concept of the judgment upon Egypt is this, is that Egypt was in complete and utter ruin by the time the children of Israel left. Got to remember the hail came that destroyed the, the crops and the moraine came and it destroyed the cattle and then the locusts came and they wiped out any other green thing that was possibly left in Egypt that hadn't already been wiped out by the hail and completely wiped it away. And then darkness came upon the land of Egypt and people, they couldn't see. And, there was, and so all of these things and these judgments left destruction in the land of Egypt from the heaps of frogs that stunk the place up, from the the swarms, which we believe was actually a plague of wild beasts that came and roamed in the land. It would have been like a stampede that would have destroyed the infrastructure of Egypt and the cities and the place. By the time all these plagues were done, Egypt was left in complete and utter ruin. It actually makes makes you think that whenever you see any story in the future where the children of Israel desired to go back to Egypt, it makes that entire concept even more ridiculous because of the condition that Egypt was in when the children of Israel left it. Why would you ever want to go back with the way that it was left? And that is what God is doing, of course, at the end of the age, is that with the time in which God is, the Messiah is needing to return to the earth, that this is a time in which the anti-Messiah will rise up. This will be a time in which lawlessness is prevalent throughout the earth. Now, in the world that we live in, and you turn on the news cycle, that makes us think that the return of the Lord might be sooner rather than later. And we don't know exactly when the Lord is going to return exactly. We can look at the prophecies, and we can guess, and we can make determinations. But it's also a time in which the Scripture says that no man knows the day or the hour. Now, we know that's also an idiom for that it has to do with the Feast of Trumpets, But the Scripture always has multiple meanings to it as well, and we truly don't know when these judgments are coming. But we do understand this, that God is going to judge the earth. He is is a just God. He is a merciful God, but He will not let the guilty go unpunished. And I guarantee you there are many people walking the earth today that that wickedness has, has just abound in the earth and that there is judgments that are coming upon the earth. Now, that's not for us to then live our lives in fear that there is all this fearful judgments that are coming upon. Look, the Lord is going to take care of His people. He's going to seal His people. He's going to choose who His people is. And and just like the, the children of Israel in Egypt that were protected from some of the plagues and didn't have to deal with some of the things of the plagues, some of the judgments that there will be a protection upon His people. We don't have to live in fear. Put our trust in God when any of these types of things come. But nevertheless, we do have to understand what God is doing. Once again, making Himself known to the earth. For anyone who does not believe in God, does not believe in the power of God, does not believe that He can perform supernatural miracles and healings, and you have people walking around in the earth who believe in other gods and all these things, I guarantee you that if the judgments that are listed for us here in the book of Revelation... If they are literal judgments that are going to happen, that are going to come upon the earth, when they're done, all the people in all the world will know who is God. 
not the gods that they worship in their temples, wherever they might be, or whatever other high places where they worship or sacrifices that they make to their other gods, or people who don't even think there is a God. I guarantee you, after all of these things, the world will know that there is God, that God exists, that God, the creator of heaven and earth, and is the one who has made these things happen. There's another list of judgments uh, that comes from Revelation chapter 16 that are called the bowls of wrath and that we can talk about some of these things as well because, again, these are more of this parallel to the plagues of what Egypt faced as well. If you turn uh, to Revelation chapter 16, this is where it says this, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth. And a foul, loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped the image. Remember the plague of boils that came upon the Egyptians? There's a parallel judgment that will come at the end of the age when we're talking about the mark of the beast that is either marked in the forehead or the hand, that, there's some, that there is a sore or an affection that's going to come upon those that took the mark of the beast. Now, not unlike that some people might know this or, or explained, this is one of the things that when you go into the Scripture and talks about how the Lord does not want us to put marks on our bodies, tattoos on our skin, because we are to be holy as the Lord is holy. We'll cover all that in the book of Leviticus, of course. And that basically, if you've ever seen any kind of adverse reaction to somebody getting a tattoo or an infection, this is what can happen when you mark your body. It's a, it's a side effect. It's actually it's something that happens fairly common. So whenever those things happen, they got to be very sterile and very clean, or you just avoid those things altogether. But be, there's a connection all the way here to those that take the mark of the beast that will happen at the end of the age. One of these plagues this comes upon those that had that mark or had that in their skin. And again, parallels right back to the plague of Egypt, the plague of boils. Continuing on with some of these judgments as well, verse 3, And the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became, uh, became blood as, a de- as of a dead man. And, and every living creature in the sea died. Once again, we have water turning to blood, a judgment that parallels perfectly with one of the plagues. Continues on here, Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, the Lord God Almighty, true and righteous, are your judgments." Some of the other plagues continue on here. There's another, uh, or the bowls of wrath, I should say. They're talking about the darkness. Men are scorched. The Euphrates is dried up and all of these other judgments that are coming. But I think verse 7 right there sums up what God is doing here to reveal Himself, where it says, those that believe in God when the judgments are coming upon the Lord. That's not a day for us to be rejoicing for the destruction that God is bringing upon and the judgments that He's coming. But, Our reverence is to be to God for His power. Even so, it says there in in Revelation uh, 16-7, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. When these judgments are coming upon the earth, might I recommend that we keep our reverence pointed to the Lord, not rejoicing over the death of those who are enemies of God or who is of that judgment, 
or that we should stand up and say, you know what, Lord, I think you're being kind of harsh. Man, a third of this, a third of that, all the creatures of the sea. God, what are you doing? Might I recommend that we not put ourselves in the place of the judgment seat to determine or question God's judgments. God is bringing upon His judgments, and we are to look at Him for His righteousness. Would not have been well for any of the Hebrews in the, in the land of Egypt to see all the judgments coming upon the Egyptians, and then to say, it's all like, Lord, you're, uh, God is being really harsh. People going to Moses and say, Moses, make it stop. That's, it's, it's too much judgment. It's like, no, God is the one who is the judge. God gets to choose these things, and might we be it might be wise for us to not question what God is doing. It might have been easier for the children of Israel in Egypt because they were in slavery. The bitter taskmasters that, that, that whipped them, beat them, put them into the slavery. When all the judgments came upon Egypt, for the Hebrews, it probably was easy for them to watch. You know, as sad as that kind of sounds, as I say that, it's like, no, I mean, they, they didn't have to question this because God, with a great, mighty, powerful hand, is bringing them out and bringing these judgments upon the Egyptians and because they were enslaved and they were in bondage. The difference at the end of the age, however, is that there are many people who don't recognize the chains and the bonds that we are bound to this world. We think that we're living it up, that people that, even people that don't believe in God, they think... They think their life is great. They think they don't see the spiritual chains that they have been bound to the ways of this world. So when the judgments of God come upon the earth, it will be harder for them to hold their tongue to speak against what God is doing. That is a warning to us at the end of the age. When God is pouring out His judgments, we are to proclaim our worship of the Lord and proclaim that God... Worshiping Him, Almighty, His judgments are righteous. That's a word of advice for whenever God does certain things in the earth, as much as we might think God is being harsh or God shouldn't let that happen, we have to hold our tongue because of the power and the awe and the reverence that we have to our Creator. Now, as I said, our Torah portion talks about, uh, after it gets done talking about the plagues, and it talks about the proclamation of the death of the firstborn, and then we have the entire chapter of Exodus chapter 12 talking about the implementation of the Passover sacrifice, the bringing in of a lamb, and the blood of that lamb being put on the doorposts of the, each house because the judgment that was coming upon Egypt and the death of the firstborn, once again, more judgments that are coming, that when, they, when the angel of the, the destroyer comes and sees the blood on the doorpost, that he would pass over that house and the judgment would not enter in. And so we have the instruction all detailing about the Passover lamb, that each person was to bring a lamb into their house and to make that sacrifice. And this is all about the meal. And we'll talk, of course, about Passover and the, the entire idea of the Passover Seder when that actually comes up here in a couple of months. And we'll have plenty of teachings and instructions about Passover. The thing I want to focus on for this teaching, however, is a traditional reading for the, the Brit Hadashah portion for, this, uh, for the portion of Go, is uh, John chapter 19. This is the specific details about the Messiah as He died upon the cross. 
as he was there on the cross and he was there crucified. And when it basically said, when he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. That was verse 30 of John chapter 19. There then is a very interesting set of details here that are given for us, starting at verse 31 of exactly what happened to the Messiah right immediately after he died upon the cross. John chapter 19 at verse 31, it says this, Therefore, because it was the preparation day, the day before the high Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that the legs might be broken, that they may be taken away, because now this was a procedure that during crucifixion, you know, if you wanted to speed up the process of the death of the crucifixion, what they would come and do in an act of cruelty would break the legs of the person that was still supporting themselves and keeping themselves upright, cause all the body weight to basically hang upon the wrists, and that the pulling and the straining of that would cause somebody to die more quickly, usually by asphyxiation because the, the strain on the shoulders and the people would basically, in crucifixion, would choke themselves to death, and the death would be more rapidly. So they said, for the sake of the Sabbath day, let's kill these men and get it over with, rather than having them hang for a longer period of time. So then, verse 32, So the soldiers came to break the legs, and they came to the first and the others that were crucified with him. But when they came to Yeshua, they saw that he was already dead. So they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified that his testimony is true, and that he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these are the things that were done, that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Specifically where it says, Not one of his bones shall be broken. And, another, and again, another Scripture says, they, looked, they shall look on him who they pierced. Now, the part about looking on them who they pierced, that's a connection to the prophet Isaiah. The prophecy about not one of his bones shall be broken connects back to our Torah portion, specifically Exodus chapter 12 at verse 46. Again, in, this, in our portion, there's a great amount of details that go into what it is to celebrate the Passover, to be with, with the Messiah and to celebrate the Passover, the redemption from slavery in Egypt. But, of course, the Messiah, he paralleled the Passover as well when he implemented the implementation of the Last Supper and of the new covenant in which that he proclaimed himself to be a piece of bread that if you eat, you'll never go hungry again, a drink that if you drink of him, you'll never be thirsty again. And he took the bread at the Passover, said, this is my body. He took the bread or he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. And that he made himself to be the Passover sacrifice that he was the Passover lamb. Now, there's greater parallels to even all the things that he did in the course of his, of his crucifixion and his sacrifice that parallel nearly every other service of the altar and every other type of sacrifice that there is. But one thing that is never lost on even your average everyday Christian is this, is that Yeshua, Jesus, was the Passover lamb. He was the lamb. He was the sacrifice by the means that life was given. Remember in ancient Egypt, they killed the lamb, the blood went on the doorpost, and if that blood was not on that doorpost, 
then death was going to come into that house and the firstborn of every house was going to die. So the, the blood being put on the door was a means of salvation from imminent death. And when you look at the testimony of Yeshua and His sacrifice, His blood is a covering for us that grants us eternal life. That is what the entire purpose of the sacrifice of the Shua is, so that we might have eternal life, so that we might be blessed and we might have, a, that we pass from death to life, where death, if we have a, a confess of faith in Him, that death no longer has any power over us, in the same way that the blood of the Passover lamb in Egypt, the death had no power over them over the people, over the children of Israel who were in their houses at that time, eating that lamb, eating that meal, all while the destroyer came and brought judgment upon the house of Egypt. Now, with the Messiah being that sacrifice, it's one of those parallels that you see when it's specifically commanded about the eating of the lamb on Passover where it says that it was specifically about that, that when the lamb is brought in, it's to be eaten, it's to be consumed whole, and it should, that in one house it shall be eaten. Now read in verse 46. You shall not carry any of its flesh outside of the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. You might look at that and just be like, well, what's the deal about that? If you're going to cook a lamb, if you're going to eat it, and, and then there's going to be you know, a carcass left of it, what's the point of maintaining that the bones not be broken? It's one of the things that just on surface level, we believe that it has to do with the fact that this is a holy sacrifice, that we're not to treat it in any unworthy manner, even after it's been cooked, even after it's been consumed. It's not that we're supposed to crush the bones up and use it for something else, but there's still an honor and a reverence to that sacrifice. But then we come to learn through the testimony of Yeshua how important that really is that that directly connects to Yeshua, that none of His bones were broken. Why would the Scripture point that out explicitly? To connect Yeshua to the Passover lamb. Now, the connection to the Passover lamb doesn't stop there, because what's interesting also about the crucifixion of the Messiah is that it took place on the Mount of Olives. It took place across the Kidron Valley, across from the Temple Mount, that that is where the sacrifice of Yeshua actually took place. We believe it could have been near or at the same place that the red heifer sacrifice took place on a special altar outside of the camp. We know by the testimony of the centurion that he saw the tombs open, the veil rent, and that he believed that this was the Son of God, the only place a Gentile can stand on planet Earth and know that the veil of the temple was rent was standing on the Mount of Olives looking across the Kidron Valley at the temple. And what connected those two mountains was what was called the priestly bridge, where people, where they would come into the temple upon this bridge. Now, what that makes the crucifixion site actually to be is this, the threshold of the temple, the place that you cross over. When you cross over and you leave the Mount of Olives and you step onto that bridge and you begin the path to going into the temple, that means the place of the crucifixion was the threshold of the temple. Well, guess what? Our scripture specifically pointed out that His blood came out when the piercing of His side and the blood came out upon the ground there at that place. This was at the threshold of the temple. 
In the same way that the blood of the Passover lamb was the sacrifice happened at the threshold of the house so that the blood could then be put upon the doorpost and the lintel of the house. This was a threshold sacrifice. It was the implementation of the threshold covenant. My brother Rico's got a great teaching on all of this. There's a book that was written in the 1800s that was all about this, about the idea of making a sacrifice at the threshold and the crossing of a threshold being an act of covenant by which that also you can look at the whole Passover story in a whole new light in this, that not only was the, the destroyer, the angel of death, passed over the houses that had the blood on it so that death didn't come in, but that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator of heaven and earth, crossed over and passed over the threshold of every house that had the blood so that he could enter into covenant with them. That's what was going on with the Passover. It was a covenant meal by which God was making covenant with the children of Israel and that, believe you me, he was passing over that threshold into the houses and he was eating the meal spiritually with the children of Israel. And by the blood being put on the threshold of the temple, the blood of Yeshua, there was another implementation or in a parallel to the same sacrifice that took place in ancient Egypt. Yeshua also said this in John chapter 10 at verse 9. He said this, I am the door. Kind of this curious thing when he says that no one enters to the Lord or comes to the Lord through except through him and that he is the door by which we enter in. That's a, once again, if I'm saying that the place of the crucifixion was the threshold, then his body hanging on the cross before showing that he is the door, that that happened at the place by which you would enter in to the temple. By the way, the whole symbolic nature of entering into the temple is entering into the presence of God. In the same way that when we, we believe we die, we go in to, to, to meet with the Lord, or anytime we made a sacrifice to the Lord in the temple, we're going into the presence of God. And that's why we believe, as born-again Christians, that the belief in Yeshua that allows us to enter into the presence of God when we pass away, that, we, that, that when we die, we don't go into eternal judgment. We don't go into this, this concept that we call hell, but we go into be with the presence of the Lord. Sometimes we call it heaven. Sometimes we call it the kingdom. And there's plenty of theories on what happens to us after we die. But nevertheless, we do have this understanding and this feeling that we desire to be in the presence of God. And it's through the blood of Yeshua that allows us to enter in. Also, when the Scripture describes Him as our high priest, that we enter in by Him, that nobody went into the presence of God, into the holy place, into the holy of holies, except for the high priest. He was the only one allowed to go in. And when we start talking about the priesthood later on in the book of Exodus, we will absolutely be pointing out the idea and the concept that Yeshua is our high priest. And through Him, we enter into the presence of God. The, the parallels here to him and the Passover sacrifice, the Passover lamb, is uncanny. <laughs> this is why the, he, his crucifixion, the Last Supper, all of it took place on the Passover. If it wasn't clear enough of what his sacrifice was doing, that he is bringing us from death, from the slavery of sin and death, and bringing us into eternal life, that he's making the parallel to exactly what happened to the uh, Israelites being brought out of the slavery of bondage to Egypt and given a whole new life. That is what Yeshua has come to do. 
Now, toward the end of our Torah portion here, I said all of the, pa- the stipulations for the Passover are being given to us here at the end of our Torah portion. There's a couple of things that I want to take note as well. There's a law of the firstborn that is at the very end of our Torah portion in the middle of chapter 13 of Exodus that talks about how anyone who opens the womb that the firstborn belongs to God. It's kind of this, it's it's God's portion. It's like the first fruits of a womb belong to God. There's a connection specifically in Luke chapter 2 at verse 22 through 24 that talks that directly references this commandment in our Torah portion that's talking about the sacrifice that Mary did after Yeshua was born and that everything that was done in the life of Yeshua, that it was done appropriately according to Torah. And that you, there was a sacrifice made under in this understanding that's recognized for us in Luke chapter 2 that points to us to the fact that Yeshua being the firstborn of Mary, that every sacrifice was made and that the firstborn belongs to God. I guarantee you, Yeshua being the Son of God, the firstborn of God, <laughs> almost like you might say, maybe that part wasn't necessary, except for those of us who study after the fact and know that Yeshua followed Torah, He kept Torah, He was the lawgiver, that everything in the course of His life was done rightly and appropriately according to Torah, even to here at our Torah portion here in the middle of chapter 13. The last thing I do want to talk about is this. One of the Passover regulations that is given for us here at the end of Exodus chapter 12 says this, that nobody who is uncircumcised should celebrate the Passover. Now, this has created several debates among people, believers, Jews, uh, Messianics, Hebrew roots believers and followers about who we allow in to celebrate our Passover seders. When you bring something somebody in, it says that there should be no foreigner that eats it and that anyone who comes in to eat it must be circumcised to celebrate the Passover, to eat of the Paschal Pesach sacrifice. And so, one, we might look and specifically say, well, that's all about physical circumcision. You know, the sign that was given to Abraham, that that's a stipulation for us to follow and so that we can keep the Passover. However, we have a wonderful New Testament portion in which the Apostle Paul is teaching us about something that is greater than just the physical sign of circumcision. If you go to Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 25, the Apostle Paul says this, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and in the spirit not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. This is the teaching of the Apostle Paul, speaking about what circumcision truly is to be to us and to believers. It's not about what you are outwardly, that you're a Jew by heritage or that you uh, perform all these things, but the Lord looks at our hearts to want to know, 
Are you circumcised within your heart that you are one who keeps the law regardless of what you look like on the outside? This is the nature of circumcision. This is actually what it's about because some people think that it's all about the physical sign. No, it's about who, what, who are you and what do you do? What commandments do you follow? What God do you believe in and do you obey? This is, and even somebody, a foreigner, can walk in and keep the commandments of God and inside their heart be circumcised of their heart and be a follower and a believer of God, and they perform and they they righteously fulfill the law in the actions that they do. And it says even here, the Apostle Paul warns that even that person can be a judge of those that are supposedly following the law, but of the outwardly, fleshly manner. This is something that we have to understand about who we truly need to be in our hearts and not just what we wear on the outside or what we look like. This is, I believe the Apostle Paul truly teaches us what truly what circumcision is about, is about what is written on our hearts. When the law is written upon our hearts, when we talk about the law being written on tablets of flesh and not upon tablets of stone, we're talking about something that spiritually, we're talking about this cut and these marks and these engravings in our heart of flesh. It's it's like a circumcision-like act because circumcision is, of course, a cut. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mark in the, in the flesh. And so when the Torah is written on our hearts, you know, the, that flesh gets kind of cut into a little bit. That's what it means to be circumcised of your heart. You have the law written there. Just because you don't look like you have the law or you follow the law or that you have all these other physical signs outwardly, but truly what's on the inside is what counts when it comes to the Lord. This has been our teaching here at Lion Land Ministries for a great deal of time, is that when it comes to the celebrating of the Passover, the eating of the Passover sacrifice, first of all, when we're scattered in the nations and we don't have a temple, none of us are eating the Passover sacrifice exactly as it's commanded in Torah. We're not eating the exact lamb that is commanded for us to, be, to eat, to be sacrificed, to make sure no bone is broken, and we're not eating that lamb and that sacrifice. We're all practicing to keep the Passover because we're scattered in the nations and nobody is truly eating the Pesach sacrifice. We're all practicing. So for us to take a hard-line approach that we have to be physically circumcised to eat what it basically amounts to a practice sacrifice or a practice meal is kind of interesting for us to like take that kind of hard-line approach. So when our counsel has always been that when you are eating of this Passover sacrifice, that we are to invite our brethren who are our fellow believers regardless of their physical circumcision. Once again, I've never been to a Passover Seder where we ask the BS to drop trowel before coming in the door. But what we are to be cautious of is, and to, to, to see and to look out upon those that we would celebrate the Passover with and celebrate a Seder in our home is, are we circumcised of our flesh? Are we a believer in Yeshua? Have we prayed and asked for the Messiah to come and dwell in our hearts? And that's one of the things that we encourage the Passover to be is to be an outreach and a memorial for those who have a testimony of being saved, a testimony of salvation. Maybe not salvation from slavery in Egypt, like the Jews do, but a testimony of being saved from the slavery of sin and death because we have been given eternal life by the blood of Yeshua. 
If that is your testimony, then the Passover is for you, especially all the practice Passovers that we're doing every single year when we're doing our best to celebrate the Messiah, the memorial meal of Passover, and to keep the commandments with all of our hearts to the best of our abilities. That is what the Passover is about. So let us be encouraged to look inwardly at who we are, who we believe in, what commandments we follow, and what is written on our hearts. And it's once again a reminder to not judge a book by its cover and what we look like on the outside, because sometimes the most Jewish-looking people have the most bitter of roots and spirits inside of them. And sometimes the most simplest of people have a heart, a soft heart of flesh with the, that the Lord loves and, 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 and just the, the Spirit of God is just present inside that person. So let us not be one that judges things on the outside, but as Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 2, but it is those that are a believer and a follower of God on the inside that counts. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this teaching once again, for your instruction. Thank you, Lord, for the Torah portion of Bo and the uh, implementation of the Passover and all of these commandments and these stories, Father. Father, you have made a means for your people to uh, celebrate with the covenant meal of Passover and all of the biblical feasts and the Sabbath, Lord, for us to celebrate and remember you. Remember your commandments, obeying and keeping your instructions. Father, we thank you for the salvation that you have given to us. We thank you for the example of salvation, Lord, from the children of Israel being saved from Egypt and their bondage. But Father, we thank you for that setting the stage and being that initial symbolism of the greater salvation that is from you, the Messiah, His blood, saving us from sin and death. We thank you for that sacrifice, Lord, for giving of your firstborn, Lord. Father, we uh, humbly thank you, Lord for giving us a Savior and a means that, we might be, that death might be conquered and that we might have eternal life in you and with you. Father, we desire to be in your presence, Lord. So we pray and we ask that you invite us in into your house to become children, your children, Lord, sons of the living God, Lord, heirs to your kingdom and your blessings, Lord. Let us set aside ourselves and always keep our focus on you and the blessings that you have to give to us. We love you, we bless you, and thank you for everything that you do in our lives. And once again, for this time and opportunity to study your word and your instruction. We love you, bless you, and thank you. In Yeshua's name, Amen. Shabbat Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.